Hey, I want to start a brand new, we're, we're starting a brand new series today, and uh, we're going through the book of Titus. If you've got, if you can reach forward to that blue Bible in the bench in front of you, you can find it on page 965. 965 is the book of Titus. Oh, I'm totally forgetful this morning. Before we do that, I want to invite my good friend Brittany Barks to come up. I want, we, want, we had last week, we had uh, two young ladies up here, Ashton and Jamie, who had traveled away. We had actually sent three off on these wild uh, global adventures, and I interviewed Ashton and Jamie last uh, week, but we didn't have a chance to interview Brittany. So, Brittany, welcome back, although I know it's been a while since you went to Guatemala. Well, thank you. <laughs> yes, and, and you've... Um, you went on a bit of a medical mission to one of my favorite places in the world that I haven't been to yet, and that is the, uh, the area, or it's a town called Taktik in Guatemala. And it's one of my favorite places in the world because my high school principal, who was a follower of Jesus, decided years ago that he was going to give the rest of his life uh, to this northern part of Guatemala. And the transformation that's happened down there because of that decision is one of, I think, one of the most encouraging stories I've ever heard. And someday I, I would like to share it with you at length. But uh, today we're going to just focus in on Brittany's story. So you were gone for how long? I was gone just 10 days, and that was um, a while back. It was in May. So Now, but these were 10 days were, like, super compressed. You did a lot, because it was a medical mission, right? It was a medical mission. So we had clinic. Um, we started in the morning. We ran clinic all morning, had lunch at the clinic, and then ran all afternoon. So we saw a lot of different, uh, mainly children, um, during that time. Okay. So now you are an RN. I am. But you were being a dental assistant, I heard. Is that allowed? Is that legal? Do I have to report you to someone? So, um, <laughs> Tell us about that. Uh, I went with a team of, there's eight of us. Six of us were RNs, there was a doctor, and then there was a philosophy student. Um, and one, a couple, one RN and the doctor were trained in just um, developing countries dental ministry, and he just needed someone to assist him. So I was mainly in the dental room just uh, charting what he was saying. So you guys go to the doctors and they're talking about your... Uh, one six, and I actually know what that means now because I was able to help out. <laughs> I was wished I knew what that meant because I thought, uh oh, what am I in for? But um, so, t tell me on the more like spiritual side of things, what what did God, what did God do? What did God uh, in your experience there? What did God do? Um, I was sharing before I came just some prayer requests I had. Uh, my team was from all over Canada and none of us had met before. And so it was cool how God just brought us all together and we just had great team unity. Um, to me, the telltale sign of that was when our meetings were done, our debrief was done. Uh, we would just sit around for another hour just sharing stories and laughing. And um, so it was cool how God brought that together. And we had health throughout the team. Um, I, yeah, every prayer that I went into asking God for, he answered it, um, to what missions looks like next for me, and we got a chance to pray for every single one of our patients, 
um, some of them without a Christian background, just an openness to see uh, to God, and we got to pray for them, and so God just opened doors, which was awesome. Cool. What? Tell me, what, what did God teach you personally through this, this time? Um, one really cool thing that God taught me was just peace. Um, Guatemala runs in a different uh, time frame than we do. We're very structural and they're more, um, relationship is more important. So uh, we found there's lots of waiting times of waiting for the next thing or whatever. And typically in times like that, I would be anxious, like, why wait? Like, we got to go. Um, but it was really cool because I recognized that usually I'd feel that way, but instead God gave me this absolute peace. And it was just like, I knew that God had planned the whole 10 days down to the last, uh, last minute. And he had given these times of rest and times of waiting. And so I just had peace. And was just like, okay, God, what are you doing? And then coming back, it's like, well, we believe that God has our whole life in our hands. Why can't I live in that peace, even in times where I would like to be doing something? But there are those times of waiting and just being in peace. Peace that surpasses understanding. Cool. So God brought you peace in the middle of your what would normally be your North American hurry. <laughs> and and yeah. Yeah, that always is a challenge, I think, when you do something cross-culturally, is that the values in that culture are not the same as the values in your culture, and not necessarily that they're wrong, but they're strange, right? They are going to be strange, and you, you might want to think it's wrong, but it actually challenges us uh, to uh, in our character, right? It challenges us on the inside. That's amazing. Now, your, your, your plans are and to... Join your parents, uh, Rod and Cheryl Barks, in church planting in Toronto in a in about month and month and a half here. So, in, before you go, we we want to pray for you, but we won't do that today. But we'll do that when you get closer to your date. But did did I'm, this is sort of bonus question here? Did seeing what was happening in Guatemala, seeing the transformation that happened there in that culture, did it give you sort of like did it sort of open up in your mind thoughts about? what God's got in store for you going to Toronto? See, I just, the, the sometimes, answers, you yeah. know, I just want to throw a hard one at people, so. Um, yeah, the answer is definitely yes. It's just that um, I think in that lines, one of the most impacting things for me um, was I went with this mindset of, like, um, I'm a strong Christian. I have something to share. But when I went, it was... It was learning from the people because we all have Holy Spirit teaching us, and it was amazing being able to learn from them. And I think going where I'm going, church planting, and I feel like I have something to give, but being open to um, God touching people and God um, impacting people and hearing their stories and learning from them as well. Um, and, like, everybody has a story, and God's the big God who's, like, the main part of it and is pursuing people. And so I'm excited to see what God's going to do in that extent of teaching me through the people I meet as well as being able to give them something. Right. Now, I don't know if the, I want to just share a little nugget here that you shared with me this morning. It's sort of top secret, but these guys are good at keeping a secret. So one of the neat stories involved in this whole thing was that... Uh, this, like, I don't know how old the mission down there in Guatemala is, maybe 20 years or something like that. I'm, I'm just taking a ballpark guess, maybe. 
the work that's been started down there has grown and prospered and, and been blessed. And now, uh, some of those people who first encountered the gospel, uh, some of those ones have grown up to be strong leaders themselves, and some of them might actually be joining our team in Toronto to help plant a Spanish church uh, neck, in, tied up with Rod and Cheryl and what they're doing. And I just want, I love what happens with the gospel. It goes from culture to culture. I mean, it's, it doesn't belong to any one culture. It just goes from culture to culture to culture, and God raises up people for himself all over the globe, and we're seeing that happen in this, uh, in this particular situation where 20 years ago, the gospel went to Guatemala in, in this area, and now out of that area, God is raising up leaders to win Canada. Hey, isn't that cool? Very cool. So anyhow, I thank you, Brittany, for sharing. I'm so glad to hear the other side of the story. We send people out. It's great to hear what happens as they go. And God bless you as you continue on this faith walk and exciting adventure towards uh, the next stage. So Thank you. All right. Let's give her a big hand. Okay, the book of Titus. Did you find it? You had a lot of time. Page 965. 965. Uh, I'm looking at the time. I, I'm going to attempt to do three things this morning. One, I'm going to attempt to encourage you to read the book of Titus. Then I'm going to um, tell you why you should read the book of Titus. That's sort of the same thing. I guess I only have two things. And uh, the last one is uh, I want to present um, how God... God's desire for us to be able to provide a godly alternative to a broken culture and how it begins with leadership. So anyhow, that's just a little bit of a foreshadowing. Titus chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 to 9 together here. I'll read here, and you guys can follow along on page 965, or, or if you've got it on your phone, on new version or whatever. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he is brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put into order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and who are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Well, so we're going to read the book of Titus. Titus is, is uh, uh, written to um, a guy who's going to start a pretty daunting effort He's going to oversee little, tiny, very tiny churches on an island in the Mediterranean. 
Now, that's not a bad missions call to be sent to an island in the Mediterranean. I mean, if God's going to send you, I mean, some of you might have grown up saying, please, God, don't send me to Africa. But an island in the Mediterranean, you know, that's pretty appealing. Uh, Crete uh, was the island. And uh, we're going to learn a little bit more of that. Do you guys have the video ready to go? We're gonna, we're gonna wa- I want to give you an overview of the book before we begin. You know, some pastors like to sort of like slowly reveal as they go, but I want you to understand it from the beginning and then we'll work our way through it. So if we can pull that video up, here we go. Companion of Paul's. He had helped Paul. Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was a Greek follower of Jesus who was for years a trusted co-worker and traveling companion of Paul's. He had helped Paul in a number of crisis situations in the past, and in this letter we discover that Paul had assigned him the task of going to Crete, a large island off the coast of Greece, to restore order to a network of house churches. Now, Cretan culture was notorious in the ancient world. One of the Greek words for being a liar was kretidzo, to be a Cretan. These people were infamous for treachery and greed. Most of the men on the island had served as mercenary soldiers to the highest bidder. And the island cities were known as being unsafe, plagued by violence and sexual corruption. However, the island of Crete had many strategic harbors and they serviced cities all over the ancient Mediterranean Sea. And so from Paul's point of view, Crete was the perfect place to start a network of churches. Now, we don't know the details, but somehow these churches came under the influence of corrupt Cretan leaders. They said they were Christians, but they were ruining the churches. And so Paul assigned Titus with the task of going there to set things straight, and this letter provided the instructions. It has a pretty straightforward design. After a brief introduction, Paul gives Titus clear instructions about his tasks in the church. He then offers guidance about the new kind of household and then about the new kind of humanity that the gospel could create in these Cretan communities. Paul then closes the letter with some final greetings. So Paul opens the whole thing by reminding Titus that his message as an apostle is about the hope of eternal life, that is, the life of the new creation that is available starting now through Jesus the Messiah. And this hope was promised long ago by the God who does not lie. Now, this little opening comment introduces an important theme underlying the whole letter. One of the problems in the Cretan churches was that they had assimilated their ideas about Jesus, the Christian God, to their ideas about the Greek gods that they grew up with, specifically Zeus, their chief god. Cretan people claimed that Zeus was actually born on their island, and they loved to tell stories and mythologies about Zeus's underhanded character. He would seduce women and lie to get his way. And Paul wants to be really clear. The God revealed through Jesus is totally different than Zeus. His basic character traits are faithfulness and truth, which means the Christian way of life will be about truth also, which will be a real change for these Cretans. So Paul then addresses Titus with a twofold task. He says the first one is to appoint new leaders for each church community, a team of what he calls elders, mature husbands or fathers, whose way of life is totally different from Cretan culture. They are to be known for integrity, total devotion to Jesus, for self-control and generosity, both in their families and in the community at large. And these new leaders are to teach the good news about Jesus and replace the corrupt leaders who need to be confronted. That's Titus's second task. Paul identifies the teachers as those of the circumcision. In other words, they were ethnically Jewish Cretans 
who said that they followed Jesus, but similar to the problems in Galatia, these people demanded that non-Jewish Christians be circumcised and follow the laws of the Torah if they really wanted to become followers of the Jewish Messiah. Paul says that they're obsessed with Jewish myths and human commands. And to top it off, they're just in the church leadership business to make money. And so Paul, in a brilliant move, he pulls a quote from an ancient Cretan poet, Epimenides, who was very frank and honest about the character of his own people. He said Cretans are always liars, vicious beasts, and lazy gluttons. They blur the lines between true and false, between good and evil, and they're just in it for the money. And so while these leaders claim to know God, their Cretan way of life denies him. They have to be dealt with. And this leads Paul into the next section. Because of these corrupt leaders, many Christians in these churches now have homes and personal lives that are a total wreck. And three different times, Paul highlights the result of all this. The message about Jesus is discredited. Their non-Christian neighbors now have good cause to make evil accusations. And all of this makes the teaching about God our Savior totally unattractive and not compelling to anybody. So Paul paints a picture of the ideal Cretan household that is devoted to Jesus. It would be elderly men and women who are full of integrity and self-control so they can become models of character to the young people. And the young women shouldn't be sleeping around and avoiding marriage as was fashionable in Crete at the time, but rather they should be looking for faithful partners so they can raise stable, healthy families. And the young men are to do the same. They're to be known as productive, healthy citizens. Christian slaves on Crete were in a unique position because we know that because of the gospel, they were treated as equals in Paul's church communities. However, there was a danger that they would use that equality as license to disrespect their masters and then become associated with slave rebellions, which would further discredit the Christian message. You can see Paul negotiating a fine line here. He believes that the gospel about Jesus needs to prove its redemptive power in the public square if it's really going to transform Cretan culture. And that's not going to happen through social upheaval or by Christians cloistering away from urban life. The Christian message will be compelling to Cretans when Christians fully participate in public life, when their lives and homes look similar on the surface. Because after a closer look, their neighbors will discover that Christians live by a totally different value system out of devotion to a totally different God. And that's the difference that Paul beautifully summarizes at the end of chapter 2. He says the value system driving the Christian way of life is God's generous grace which appeared in the person of Jesus and will appear again at his return. This grace was demonstrated when Jesus gave up his honor to die a shameful death on behalf of his enemies so that he could rescue and redeem them. And it's that same grace that calls God's people to say no to corrupt ways of life that are inconsistent with the generous love of God. Paul then zooms out from the Christian household to a vision of Christians living like new humans in Cretan society. Of all people, Christians should be known as the ideal citizens, peaceable, generous, obedient to authorities, known for pursuing the common good. But this is really different from how Cretans grew up. How are Christians supposed to sustain this countercultural way of life? And Paul believes the power source is the transforming love of the three-in-one God announced in the gospel. And he explores this with a really beautiful poem. He says, God's kindness and love are what saved us, despite ourselves, so that through the Holy Spirit, God washed and rebirthed and renewed people 
and through Jesus has provided a way for people to be declared right before him. And all of this opens up eternal life, that is, a new future in the new creation. This living story is so powerful, it can produce new kinds of people. Paul's convinced that spirit-empowered faithfulness to the teachings of Jesus will declare God's grace all over the island of Crete and all over the world. Paul concludes by promising to send backup for Titus, either Artemis or Tychicus, and then he says hello to their common friends. And so the letter ends. The letter of Titus shows us Paul's missionary strategy for churches to become agents of transformation within their communities. It won't happen by waging a culture war or by assimilating to the Cretan way of life. Rather, he calls these Christians to wisely participate in Cretan culture. They need to reject what's corrupt, but also embrace what's good there. If they can learn to live peaceably and devote themselves to Jesus and to the common good, Christians will, in his words, show the beauty of the message about our saving God. And that's what the letter to Titus is all about. All right. So it's a lot to take in, but that's a really helpful beginning. Um, I want to encourage you to read the book of Titus. It's only three chapters long. Probably if you have a sort of average reading speed, you can do it in 15 minutes. I'd encourage you to read it, and I'd encourage you to read it several times. This is a principle I just came up, like, I wish I'd known this years ago. So I'm going to tell you what I wish I knew years ago, was that if you really want to study the Bible, I used to just sort of like read one book, and then I'd read the next book, and read the next book, and read the next book. And I think that there's a place for that. If you've never read the Bible, maybe that's where you want to begin. But if you've read the Bible... And, it, and you really want to get deeper into the Bible, what I recommend is grab onto a portion of the Bible and read it many, many, many times. Um, so you take something short like Titus, three chapters, and you read it again and again and again. You're going to start to see the, the you're going to start to understand it more. You're going to start to see the connections. You're going to see the broader theme. A whole bunch of things are going to stand out to you. And you're going to really come away with going, I get what this is about. Most of us, when we encounter the Bible we, or engage the Bible, we engage it in bits and pieces, not the overarching narrative. And also, we don't understand um, necessarily even just the smaller parts in their entirety, right? I find Paul sometimes very hard to understand because he has long run-on sentences. So it takes me several times to get through. Even We're going to go through one of his run-on sentences here this morning. It takes me several times to go through it. So I encourage you to read it and read it and read it. 15 minutes max, some of you can read it probably in uh, 10, um, but to read it through. And here's a hint. The first time you read it through, or maybe the second time, okay, maybe the first time you read it through, you just read it through. But maybe the second time you read it through, and if you have a Bible you're comfortable with highlighting, you, you know, I encourage you to have at least one Bible you use like a workbook, to go through and underline or highlight every time it says the word good. Because the, the book of Titus says the word good an awful lot. And because it, it's talking about doing good and how, and again, we're talking about, we learned in the video, but we're talking about the cultural transformation of people through the gospel and how it, the, the, the proper teaching of the gospel and exposure to the gospel should lead to living a good life. So anyhow, I'll just give you that as a hint for maybe one of your first times through. Go through and see how many times it says the word good and even the phrases around 
that word, those words good, and you'll begin to understand more and more um, what Titus is all about. So that's a little bit of an encouragement there. So it's sort of neat to encounter a book of the Bible that talks about the strategic plan to transform an island in the Mediterranean. But unless you're planning to live on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean in the first century, which is impossible, unless you have a time machine or a DeLorean that goes very fast, unless you have that, you are not going to be able to directly apply that to your life. You're going to have to think a little bit farther. And the farther step I'd like us all to take is to think of what can we glean and gather from their approach, Paul and Titus and the other believers who are with him, what can we glean and gather from their approach to seeing the island of Crete transformed to our approach to seeing Moose Jaw and surrounding area transformed? Because even as I say, hey, read the book of Titus over and over again, you think, why? So I can find out what happened historically? No, it's so that we can find out what God might lead us into today for him to guide us and for this to transform our lives as well. So I encourage you to, to, to put it into uh, today's context, and I'll try to help you to do that. One of the ways I want to help you to do that is to show you our church mission statement. Okay, so let's look at our church mission statement. All right, just read it to you. We strive to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. That's, our, that's why this church exists. That's why our church exists. We strive. We're working. We put in effort. We do planning. We have strategy. Why? For what purpose? Well, we want to see all people reconciled to God. We want to see all people. We believe that's the heart of God. That he wants to see people reconciled to himself. Right? That we believe that's what scripture teaches. And so, we align ourselves with God. This is his church, not ours. Right? We belong to him. So we align ourselves with him. So we strive, we work, we put in effort, we plan to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. So, let me jump back into our text here. I found a nice little echo of, uh, of the text in our mission statement. Okay, let me just read this to you in um, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. I'll, I'll stop there. So two phrases I'd like to draw you to. He says that there's these two things that lead to godliness, faith and the knowledge of the truth. I'll come back to those in a second. Okay. And all this is in the context of the hope of eternal life. Now, eternal life, can we go back to our mission statement? Can we go back to the mission statement here? Thank you. Eternal life is when people are reconciled to God, that's what they receive. They, eternal, they receive eternal life. For God so loved the world, this is John 3.16, if you've seen it at a football game, held up on a sign. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, would not perish but have eternal life. Okay? So that's, that's what we, that's what, it's not all, like really what you get when you become a follower of Jesus is you get God. That's, 
the essence of it. But part of that package is you, you have eternal life with God, right? That's the duration of how long you get God forever, right? So you look here in the, in the text, it says the hope of eternal life is, is really spurring all this on. We hope for everyone on the island of Crete that they could have this relationship with God that lasts forever, that they could be his son or his daughter and they could experience the purest, greatest love that's available to mankind. That their sins would be forgiven and that they could become a brand new type of person. They could be reborn into a brand new life. And what describes that life? Well, it's a life of godliness. Godliness, or another way to say godliness would be godlikeness or becoming like God in his character. And how do we see his character? By viewing Jesus, right? That's probably the, you know, again, if God had a Facebook page, his profile would be Jesus, right? That's the best picture we've gotten of God. We see God through the Old Testament. We understand a lot of his character through that. And we see, uh, even look at creation, that hints to us about God. But man, what an incredible picture God has given us of sending his son, Christ, to come and give us this incredible picture of what God is like. So, so both of these things, godliness and eternal life, are echoed in our statement, right? So I, I think that means that our mission statement is probably aligned correctly because we're saying in our statement what we also are finding in the scriptures, right? We want people to experience reconciliation with God. We want them to have eternal life. But also, it's important that they experience all that God has for them, not just after they die, but now, to experience maturity in Christ, and when you become mature in Christ, you become like him, and that's what we call godliness, right? So how does godliness happen? How does godliness happen? How do we become like him? Let me go back to these other two words that are in the opening statement here. Paul says he's a servant of Jesus Christ, and one of his roles as being a servant of Jesus Christ is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So let me just simplify that a little bit more. Paul's role, God's given him this role, is to do whatever he can to further people's faith, to inspire faith, and to, uh, to cause faith to grow and develop in followers of Jesus, and also their knowledge of the truth, that that would grow as well. So a growing faith and a growing knowledge of the truth, and together that leads to godliness. Now I was, as I've been reading through the book of Titus, I found it very fascinating that you find some passages that you really think, wow, this passage is, is about inspiring faith. Usually the passages are describing what Jesus has done for us. And so that's what inspires faith in us. A, a statement no, I'll get, I'll get to that in a second. Then you find other passages that are really just sort of knowledge of the truth. So these passages are more like, this is what Jesus has done for us. This is his grace for us. This is what we're responding to. And then you have these other passages that are like, this is what God requires. Right? It's just sort of straight teaching. You know what I find fascinating? Is I find that at different times in my life, I've been gravitate to one or the other more. Sometimes I just, I just... Uh, sometimes I'd just be like, you know what, just tell me what to do. I, 
I don't want to read all that other theology stuff. I just want to know what God requires of me. And I'm going to go out and do that. And I don't think that's as strong as it could be because it actually should be connected to what God has done for us. And, and other times we might go, hey, I just really want to dial down into what God has done for me. And I, no, I don't want to hear about all the things God's commanding. I don't want God's commands. I just really want to know what God has done for me and just sort of, you know, uh, sort of saturate myself in that. And I'll probably figure that out other stuff out later. But actually, I find that these two are both essential. You'll see this in most of Paul's, well, I'd say you see this in all of Paul's writings and, and the writings of the other followers of Jesus. They have this combination of, here is the truth we believe about Jesus. And then, here's the application to our lives. Or, here is the right stuff to believe, and here is the right stuff to do. Believe right and do right, and they come together, and that they're both needed. So when you read the book of Titus over and over, as I'm encouraging you to do, you'll see that. you say, hey, here's a list of things to do. Cool. But why? What's the power behind that? What's the motivation to do those things? Here is what Jesus has already done. Those things come together. There's a statement that um, I read about six months ago, and it sort of hasn't left me for about six months, and I've shared it once or twice from here. Um, Everything that Jesus did... So if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those accounts of Jesus' life, everything that Jesus did was for two purposes. One, so that we would trust him. And two, um, one, so that we would trust him. And two, that he could leave us an example. So when I see um, Jesus interacting with people that the rest of society had shunned and sort of considered unclean and couldn't talk to them, I go, Oh, wow. So if I've got brokenness in my life, which I do, and I've got issues in my life, I realize that he will still accept me. He will still come near to me. He wants relationship with me. I'm not too unclean for Jesus. He will come. So that's encouraging. So that tells me about what he does. That causes me to trust him, right? I can trust him in relationship. I might have other relationships where I don't trust them because if they really knew who I was or what I did, they wouldn't like me anymore. They would consider me unclean or unworthy of being in relationship with it. But Jesus is not like that, so I trust him. But also, it's an example for me. Then I go, oh, wow. Now I get that I also am called to live a godly life, to live like Jesus, so now in my relationship with people that I would naturally discard because of the stuff that's in their lives, I'm called to live like Jesus, right? Do you see those sort of two things together? So again, Paul's saying, I want to build up your faith in what God has done, and I want to I also help you know what's true, what God requires. And both of those are essential it's the power, but it's also the path. And both of those are essential to, to lead to godliness, right? Let me read the phrase again. Paul, the servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So when you read what God requires, you know what to do, but then you read what God has done, then you trust him enough to do it. And it's motivating as well. All right. So, 
what can we learn from this passage? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into the next passage or the next part that we read. What can we learn from the appointing of elders, which is Titus's first task, right? Now, there's several tasks he's been given to do, but the very first one, okay, we want to see Crete changed. We want to see this island full of mercenaries and, and sexually promiscuous people. We want to see it changed for Jesus. We want to see them become sons and daughters of Jesus, living a totally different life. What's the first thing we need to do? Paul says, you need to appoint leadership. You need to begin with leadership. And that's true. Like in any organization that you're a part of, your workplace, uh, your um, if you go to school, the school that you're in, your family, your extended family, uh, so much rises and falls based on the leadership. Somebody is setting the tone. Someone's setting the pace. Someone's creating the culture, right? Oh, that's so important. If the culture stinks because of the leadership at top, it sort of, the stink filters down all the way through it. But if the culture's, I mean, if the leadership is good at the top, often that has a way of filtering all the way down. And you might have problems on the lower levels, but because generally things are structured well and there's good leadership that you can trust and you can follow, it's a lot better. It's really important. Now, I want to just say this really quickly, because as I read about what the requirements are for elders, I might have 99% of you check out because you say, well, I don't, I'm not a biblical, I'm not an elder in the church, and I maybe I'm not intending to be an elder, or I don't feel like I'm called to do that, and so now I don't really have to check in. But remember, this is stage one in the transformation of an island. I think when God sees our church, he sees our mission, he sees our heart, he sees Moose Jaw, I think he doesn't just want half a dozen guys who have good character. I think his idea is to see hundreds of men and women and boys and girls who are rising to the standard that we're going to read about in a second. He wants to see an entire culture that's an alternative culture to a culture of brokenness in, the, in these very same areas we're going to talk about. So here you had Crete following Zeus, who is a liar and a seducer, and here you had a new type of people within that culture. So at the beginning, they're all the same. But some of them come to follow Jesus, and Jesus is faithful, and Jesus is true, and Jesus is not a liar, and Jesus is not a cheat. And so what you're going to have happen is this cult, you're going to have a culture within the culture that starts to look different. Here in Moose Jaw, I think we have uh, cultures that overlap an awful lot. Part of it is because our whole North American culture has been greatly influenced by Christianity. Greatly influenced. So people might sort of hold to some of the similar cultural, cultural values because the fumes of the gospel are still sort of, you know, resonating in their lives. They're still benefiting from what I would say was some good leadership in their lives. But I think what's going to happen, and I, I don't like to be the prophet or prophesier. Those, I just want to say that I think this is probably a fair bet. That I think what we're going to experience in the future is that these cultures are going to gap more. You might notice it already. 
You might notice it maybe in your workplace where people say, well, this is what I do, and you realize as a follower of Christ, you know God requires something different. And right now, it might not seem like a big gap. And maybe in most parts of your life, it's a big overlap. But you know what? As things go further, my prediction would be is you're going to see that gap grow. And some of the things that the culture took for granted, once, they've, once people have rejected God, they've rejected the root or the power source or the originator of that same idea, and they start to question everything. Well, why do we do this and why do we do that? And I don't see a reason because there is no purpose behind everything that we do. I think there'll be that drift is going to speed up. And so what do we want to create? We want to create an alternative. An alternative that people can see and experience. And then when they say, you know what? It does make sense to have a marriage that lasts a lifetime. But I don't have the foggiest idea of how to do it. My grandparents knew how to do it instinctively. But I don't know how to do it. What if we could create, what if we had a culture where you could come back to and say, well, you guys have something different. You have a different power source. You have a different, uh, you have different realities. You have th different things that you believe and there's causing you to act differently and we recognize that it is good. All right. So we don't just want six godly elders. We want hundreds who understand uh, or who are experiencing the transforming life of Jesus. So let's go through these requirements of elders, but I hope for each one of us, they'll challenge us today here we, of what God requires. Okay, so an elder must be blameless. I'll come back to that in a second because it's said two times and it's got a description the second time, so I'll come back to that one. An elder must be blameless. And we're going to look at five things here. Number one, faithful to his wife. Okay? Faithful to his wife. In Cretan culture, you could have, um, if you were an affluent person, you, could, you had a wife, usually. And, well, pretty much guaranteed you'd have a wife if you were an affluent man. But then you also would have servant girls in your house that you had power over. And also there are temple prostitutes in the culture as well, where men could go to. So Cretan men were not one-woman men. They were at least three. They had at least three opportunities to do whatever. I'm not going to get too explicit, but that was the reality. Maybe you could say there were three women, men. Okay? When the gospel comes along, when, the, when, when people realize, like, what changed the culture? What changed the culture? Well, two things. The understanding of the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the greatness of God, receiving Christ, becoming his son or daughter, and then the teaching that came with it. And this is, this is the teaching that came, right? That, that was so transformative, right? It says, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. Faithful to his wife. I went to, in 2008, I went to Burkina Faso, West Africa, and I went to a section where the gospel had transformed an area, lots and lots of Christians, and many of those Christians grew up in polygamous homes, which meant that their dads had more than one wife. 
So I visited homes which were still polygamous, where it would be one man and maybe seven or eight wives. And I was like, this is weird. This is not my normal experience. I talked to a young man who had become a Christian. In fact, his dad had become a Christian. His dad had many wives and then got, uh, became a Christian. And, uh, and he didn't get rid of all his wives because that's really complicated. What do you do? Which one do you choose not to divorce, right? It's really messy. But he taught his children about this Jesus. He taught his children about what the church was teaching him, right? That in the beginning, God made them male and female, and that's the reason why a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and they'll become one flesh. Talking about what the New Testament teaches, these very verses that we're looking at, which says, husband of one wife. And even though there, there is polygamy in the Old Testament, God never condones it, never says it's good. And so they taught that, and the next generation of believers are all one-woman men. I talked to one of those men. I said, what? Tell me about your experience, basically. This is what he told me. When I was young, I dreamed of becoming like my father with many wives. My imagination was filled with thoughts of having hundreds of kisses from many women. But then, the gospel came. And a new picture emerged. And that new picture was that a man and a woman, just one of each, would be united in such an intimate relationship and it would be a picture of the faithfulness of God to his people. And the culture changed. So the culture changed in Crete and the culture changed in Burkina Faso. What about the culture in Moose Jaw? Let's ask this one. What does it look like to be faithful to your wife in Moose Jaw in 2017? Man, the culture around us is not necessarily making this one easy. I don't know if you've noticed. I think you probably have. There's a, there's a, a lot of different ways in which uh, there's lots of different uh, distractions or pulls or whatever that are saying, hey, don't just be in the game with one spouse. What about thoughts over here? What about images over there? Or what about ideas that you could follow through on here? I think one, I, I often say to couples when we're in premarital counseling, I often say, one of the cures I think that everybody almost could benefit from if they struggle with not being engaged with the person they're married to is send them away as a couple to a deserted island by themselves for 10 years. Because <laughs> what actually has to happen for a lot of people is that, and I want to just say, if you're feeling any guilt or shame here this morning, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that for you. But I do want to recognize the reality. We live in a culture, just like if you grew up in the Cretan culture, and it was normal to go to prostitutes. It was normal uh, to not be faithful. 
If that was normal, and here in Canada, there are things, uh, maybe you grew up in a home where you didn't see faithfulness displayed through your mother and father. Maybe uh, you were exposed young to imagery that has lingered in your mind and you wish you had never had that moment and it's become a struggle for you long term. I'm going to tell you, if I could send you away to a desert island, just you and your wife, or wives, I know some wives struggle with this too, you and your husband, it'd be wonderful just to have time where all that cultural garbage could be slowly forgotten. Some of you are thinking, yeah, that would be wonderful, but it's not like that. I'm bombarded by thoughts, images, temptations. Let me give you some quick advice. I wish we could deal longer with this, but I've got four more points and I have to get them in five minutes, so let's do it real quick. I encourage you to to, uh, cut off the source. Don't make the problem worse. you will, some of you, it's just like there's a source you need to delete, you need to cut off access to, you need to put covenant eyes on your computer or whatever or your cell phone. You need to just, you need to cut off so it doesn't get worse. Okay? So it doesn't get worse. And then the slow forgetfulness can, can be a part of your life. You know what? I've noticed in my life that every time I sort of cut off a source in my life and I'm faithful with that, God will show me later on another source. Like there's, I mean, there's just stuff that is just pure evil, 100% evil. Then there's things that are like 95% good, but it still can trip you up, right? I'll tell you a practical one. A few years ago, because I love checking up on how my, this, my sports teams are doing, a few years ago, I checked two websites, ESPN and sportsillustrated.com. I go to those two websites, read stories, read stories, read stories, but one, sportsillustrated.com, had imagery in there that was not helpful. ESPN tended to not have that. I think they were really more serious about sports. So I just decided I'm not going to get any more sports content from sportsillustrated.com. So it was just a little thing. Huge help, though. Huge help. Some of you need to make radical changes. Some of you need to make minor tweaks, right? Recently, the Lord showed me, this is the last couple months, showed me, I went to a certain... um, I went to uh, msn.com sometimes to check out the news, right? And it'd be a smattering of all sorts of th- things. And then I realized, no, it's got some other stuff on it. So I've, I've quit going to that, right? I'll, I sometimes I'm perplexed. I'll go to Global News or whatever, whatever site, Canadian site I can get to, or go to BBC to see what the British are thinking. Anyhow, I, but I, so w- whether you need to do a fine tweak and God will show you that, or whether you need to do a radical purge, Cut off, if it's a major sewer pipe or a minor sewer pipe, cut the thing off. That's the beginning. But then let me give you more. Let me give you more really quickly. When you are in the fight of your life in this area with your thoughts, I want to encourage you every time, let me give you an example. Let's say you're in a scenario and you find yourself thinking about someone else who's not your wife. Okay? First thing I encourage you to do is fight with Scripture. If you have a Scripture verse, get one Scripture verse at least in your repertoire that you can fight with. Right? One of my favorites is, I'm not my own, I'm bought with a price, so honor God with my body. 
or with your body, as it says, but I say my body because that's, right? And I don't even say the whole thing. I just say, I'm not my own, I'm bought with a price. And actually, if I'm really tense, I just say, I'm not my own. Get at least one scripture verse that you can fight with. That would be my next advice. And then here's the other thing. I want to encourage you with this. When you are in that fight and you bring your mind, now if you're married, this will, I'm doing it as a married guy, I'll do it as a single guy first. As a married guy, when you bring your mind away from that thought that's leading you elsewhere and you bring it back to God, or you bring it back to your God or you bring it back to your wife or your husband, as it should be, um, that's an act of worship. It's an act of obedience. That's good. And then two minutes later, when you're in the fight of your life again, fight back again. Be absolutely defiant in this area. Keep fighting, keep fighting. And you know, you say, well, why am I keep fighting? I want to be done with this, this, this terrible um, um, difficulty in my life. Something a guy told me years ago, he said, every time you bring your attention back to God in prayer, it's an act of worship no matter how distracted you are. And that's helped me. So every time... You get pulled away, temptation comes your way, thoughts come to your mind that you don't want there, and you bring yourself back to God or your spouse or to faithfulness. That's an act of worship to the Lord. Maybe in a struggling time, you might do that dozens or hundreds of times. Every one of them is an act of worship. Do not give up. Don't stop worshiping. Don't stop fighting. Get help. Talk to somebody. If you don't have any, uh, I'll say this to men, I don't, I'm not necessarily opening the floodgates for, um, I, although I will counsel women, I'm very careful in that regard. Um, I, I usually find, a, I try to find someone who's a woman to help you do that. But if you're a man and you don't know another man you could tell your struggle to, come talk to me. Um, I think we need to be more open about this in the church. Not open as we're telling everybody, but open that we're telling one person. And when we confess our sins one to another, uh, there's strength in that. Okay, wow. I'm not going to get to the rest of my sermon. This is terrible. I'll have to cut it off like a sausage. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm glad you laughed about that. Thank you. <laughs> I really am not going to go to the rest of my sermon. That would be, cr- that would be unfair. Next week when you come back, we're going to talk about your household. We're going to talk about ruling a man whose children are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. We'll talk about being hospitable and how that's the key to allowing godly lifestyle to be seen by the culture. We're going to talk about holding firm to the trustworthy message. We're going to talk about how sound doctrine will encourage you, but also it's so important to refute false doctrine uh, so that the church remains encouraged. But today I'm going to leave you with prayer. Let's stand.